you're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Fuel for fire. We're talking about invasive grasses and how it's turned out to be our Achilles heel with the Lahaina and Kula fires. Joining us in studio is HPR Cassie Ordonio. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so so tell us. I mean, we've talked about grasses before, but uh, you were focusing on, what, guinea grass? It's a mixture of guinea grass and buffalo grass. So when you go to Lahaina, you see mostly, well, now it's dry dry grass so those are in most of those are invasive grasses and all across all of Hawaii you see there's about maybe 25 percent of Hawaii's landmass is covered in invasive or non-native grass or shrubs so these grasses invasive grasses are highly flammable and they they've been taking over most of Lahaina for for decades some some of these invasive grasses were brought over for feeding livestock like the cattle or they're brought over for um, for ornaments. So you see pampas grass, for example, those are brought in for as an ornamental kind of grass. But invasive grass, like guinea grass and buffalo grass, those are originally from Africa, where those are actually, um, you see uh, more wildfires are, are occurred over there. And so when lightning strikes, uh, it burns the grass, but the grass is actually still alive at the root system. And so experts are telling me that these grasses are actually re-sprouting after the burn of Lahaina. Yeah, I mean, they're tough to get rid of. Yeah, and so experts also told me that you can't get rid of grass. If you ever mowed a lawn before, you can't really (laughs) get rid of it. And um, I spoke to um, all, it's pretty widespread. And according to experts um, at the Countywide Invasive Species Committee, um, they're tough to eradicate. We, we sort of divide them up into four boxes, if you think about four boxes in your mind, right? The first box being prevention, that's the cheapest, you want to keep it out. The second box being eradication, uh, which is early detection. You have to find it early, and then you can get rid of it. The third box would be containment, which is if it's too widespread or you don't have the right tools, you try to hold it in a place, but that isn't a long-term strategy. That is a temporal sort of box where you're just holding it in the hopes that you're going to find new tools or you're going to be able to get the resources to eradicate it. If it gets beyond that point, and that is only a, that there's a time limit on how long something can be in containment before it's going to just sort of jump into the last box, which is widespread. And once a species is widespread, your only option is management. And management is ongoing, and it requires that you stay on top of it over the long term. That's Franny Brewer. She uh, is a program manager for the Big Island Invasive Species Committee. And what they're dealing with over there is also invasive grass, like fountain grass. So you mostly see it on the the west side or the leeward side of the island, but also talking to climate change experts. When you compare the leeward sides of Hawaii Island or the other counties, it's actually becoming a problem on the windward side, we're also seeing invasive grass over there, which can be highly flammable. And when you look at Lahaina, it's no secret that Maui has issues with uh, wildfires, but it only takes one spark. You throw a cigarette out there and you have the grass that's fueling it, that's all that's gonna take. Power line falls down, that's what it's gonna take. And if you have that fueler, it's gonna spread why it's going to spread acres and the problem with these invasive grasses because they're so widespread they're actually near nearing homes um which is actually not entirely true in a sense because it's not only in 
um, open land, you can also see invasive grass in people's backyards. So um, I know Civil B did that story about the last standing house. When I talked to experts about that on Front Street, you look at that house, there's actually no foliage. There's no type of vegetation around it. So that's that kind of keyed into its survival. And when you look at um, how climate change experts are talking about how these um, these drier conditions are going to worsen, um, it's almost going to be impossible to get rid of these invasive grasses. All, all levels of government, county, state, and federal, could use a lot more money for vegetation management across the board. You know, one of the, there are a number of hypotheses for why invasive species become successful in their new ranges. And one of the, one of the longest running hypotheses is the escape from natural enemies hypothesis. And the hypothesis suggests that one of the reasons these invasive plants do so well, spread so quick, grow so large, is because they escaped all of the predators, competitors, and pathogens in their native range. And so it adds to the complexity and difficulty of, of dealing with these because some of them you know, may have been kept in check in their home range by species that ate them or that damaged their leaf tissues. But often when they get to this new environment, they don't necessarily have those checks in place. And so they can grow quick, more quickly, spread more rapidly, and they're, they're that much harder to deal with. So what these environmentalists are asking for is more vegetation management, and it's going to take everyone to come in and actually really help out. It's going to cost a lot of money. We're not too sure how much money it could be in the millions and billions, and it's going to be up to the legislature or Congress how much money they want to give over time every year. And it's going to be up to the landowners and what capacity that they have, whether they need to hire more folks to do lawn mowing or cattle grazing. Yeah, so the, yeah, it, it, I know that was an issue that came up when uh, the last sugar mill uh, shut down and all the sugar lands that were going to be fallow, uh, you know, containing wildfires w was a big concern. So, yeah, we'll see what happens going forward, you know, um, if they can really manage this grass. Yeah, and um, one more thing I'd like to add is um, there, there were some efforts to update the noxious weed list. So there's 79 species on there so far. It's about maybe 31 years old, just as old as me. But it's, you know, those efforts has been stagnant now. So um, looking at these grasses, like buffalo grass and guinea grass, they're not even on the noxious weed list. Wow, interesting. All right, well, we'll just keep our fingers crossed and hopefully they can do a better job of managing it. But thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We've been talking to HPR uh, reporter Cassie Ordonio about managing invasive grasses, uh, which uh, many believe is being... Um, was part of what spread the blaze that killed 115 people on Maui. Uh, nearly 70 other people remain unaccounted for. You know, today is the anniversary of the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center Twin Towers in New York. And ceremonies marking the event are taking place at noon today in downtown Honolulu. One of our guests on our call-in show Friday marking the one-month anniversary of the Maui fires called the blaze R-911 and suggested that we make a fire museum as part of the plans going forward. The fire is the worst fatal fire in modern U.S. history, and we got lots of feedback following the show. We invited listeners to share their memories of the town. Here are some of the stories shared with us via our talkback line. 
Aloha, my name is Anuhea. I'm a former resident of Waikuli and Haina. Throughout all this heartbreak, all this komaha, I'm so encouraged by the community coming together. I'm so encouraged by the vision that is coming forth and that the restoration of Lahaina will harken back through all the time spaces that this precious place has seen, borne witness to, and been a core part of, and that we can resurrect the hearts of our community through the the ola of this space by restoring water, restoring trees, restoring akua, and restoring our community. Just so grateful for that. And as Uncle George Kahumoku was talking about the songs of Lahaina, these songs and these old stories teach us something deep. And the new songs from new generations to be composed in the future will continue to teach generations. Mahalo. And another listener who moved to Lahaina in 2013 uh, emailed us this. Aloha, I lived in Kona on the Big Island for a year, and it was uh, going to be only the second place I lived in the islands. Hot as hell and an oasis on the corner of the western end of Maui. It was a different world from the lava fields and coffee farms of Kona. Instead, there were sugar trains, fishing boats, and art galleries galore almost like an old Western movie town stuck in the paradise of the Pacific. It was an anomaly among the gems of Hawaii, part tourist destination, part historic uh, revelation, moving there for a teaching opportunity at the middle school. I would drive up the majestic Lahaina Luna Hills in the morning and come back down to the shimmering sea in the afternoon. Mahalo, Lauren. And, you know, uh, Mike, Michael Petrie shared this with us via email. Lahaina was a jewel in the crown of the world, a gift to all who were fortunate to have known her. In my 20s, I sailed a small sailboat across the Pacific from California to Maui in search of paradise, and I found it at Lahaina. I was a young guy who had never really been anywhere, much less the tropical paradise called Hawaii, and arriving at Lahaina from the sea was a dream come true. All the people of Maui found to be warm. I found to be warm and welcoming, none more so than at the legendary Lahaina Yacht Club. I was not a member of that club, nor any yacht club, but within hours of my landing at Lahaina, I found myself enjoying my first freshwater shower in weeks and was treated to a hearty meal and sat well into the wee hours drinking beer after beer on the house and sharing nautical stories with uh, the Lahaina uh, Yacht Club members. Well, one member was a building contractor and offered me a carpenter's job working on buildings in Lahaina. I took him up on that offer and was happy to be gainfully employed while living on the boat anchored at Mala Wharf. It was the most magical time that I will treasure forever. And here are a few more voicemails that were received. My name is Cynthia Harbert from Hyper Maui. I'm calling to celebrate the Village Galleries Maui, which was located off of Front Street behind Baldwin House, both of which were lost in the inferno one month ago. The Village Galleries Maui, owned and operated by Lynn Shu for 53 years, built a community of artists with integrity, excellence, and aloha, while maintaining honesty and expression of the beauty that is perfectly unique to Maui. Thank you so much for continuing to support your local artists, and let's never forget what the Village Galleries Maui brought to Maui. Mahalo. Aloha. 
My name is Austin. I'm from Wichita, Kansas. My first time to Hawaii was this last February where I got to explore the island of Maui and the Big Island. My love for Maui stems from the culture and the land. Even outside my small hotel window, mangoes and papayas growing in that courtyard. Oftentimes, travel around, you could find fruit stands and banana trees. The land provides and constantly gives. When I drove to Lahaina, I was immersed in history, from cultural history to tracing the footsteps of my parents on their honeymoon as my mother told the story. I remember walking through the banyan tree and looking up and being in complete awe. The laughter, the happiness, walking down Front Street and enjoying food from Paya Fish Market. I have several videos of sitting there on the patio with people in the background cycling and walking down the street with a picture-perfect landscape in the background. To experience what I had, I am so very grateful. Much kamakai to all ohana and lahana. And we got this from another transplant who put down roots in Lahaina. Aloha, I lived in Kihei from 1999 to 2005, and in 2012, working as a land surveyor for a firm in Wailuku. I will miss the art galleries and a Japanese restaurant with a cooking grill right in front of patrons and the comical cook with a flair for amusing customers. I am saddened about the damage to the banyan tree. Another memory is the park bench that has four scumps shoes. It's funny to see. Aloha for now, Owen Shaver. Thanks so much for the memories. If you have a Lahaina story you'd like to share, please email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Let's take a trip to upcountry Maui, to the land that stretches across the western-facing slopes of Haleakala, a place known as Kula. Most of the residences there lie between 1,600 and 3,600 feet, making it a much cooler place to live than the hotter, more populated towns near sea level. Kula means open meadows in the Hawaiian language and is the island's largest moku, or district. The town is home to notable destinations like the Kula Botanical Garden, which was Maui's first public garden. It was created in 1977 as a native Hawaiian plant reserve. It's also home to the Ali'i Kula Lavender Farm, which is home to 20 different types of lavender grown across nearly 1,400 acres of land. Another interesting destination is a 128-year-old church that was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1983 and may be the only historic uh, octagonal building in Hawaii. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of this church? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NareetHawaii.com. Civil Beat has a story about turmoil in the Democratic Party. Honolulu Civil Beat's uh, Chad Blair joins us for our reality check. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So we have a story today by uh, Kevin Dayton. Yeah, nice little scoop here from Kevin. Um, you know, it's normally the local Republican Party, the Hawaii <laughs> Republican Party, that has had its challenges uh, keeping uh, its party chair. There's been several of them whew, just in the last year or two. and uh, But that's another story. This story is about the Democratic Party, which, as we all know, is the dominant uh, political party in Hawaii. And it turns out that a number of prominent party members are calling for the resignation of the current party chair. That's Dennis Jung. Uh, he is being uh, accused of controversial staff decisions and for lackluster, lackluster fundraising, not bringing enough money uh, into the party. Just uh, recently, he fired the executive director of the party, Aaron Fernandez, without consulting anyone. Apparently, Jung does have that authority, the party rules, but nobody checked. And now the big thing is, is they're going forward, they're worried about the presidential preference poll. That's the Democratic uh, version of the caucus or primary that'll be next year, assuming they have enough money to run it. Yeah, I mean, that is just stunning to me because usually, you know, this is supposed to be the machine, right? Well, oil machine, we always hear it described. And so, yeah, you kind of wonder what happened. Who's Kuliana was it to right. do the fundraising? Uh, I, think, I think it's at least 30 members or more of what's known as the State Central Committee for the party. But there's others involved as well. Bart Dame, he's a very prominent uh, activist uh, in the party. He's actually the Hawaii National Committee man. And they did send a letter to Jung uh, recently telling him they want him to step down. They feel like they really don't have any trust in his abilities uh, to fulfill his duties. No comment directly uh, about this from Jung. He said he hadn't had a chance yet to really get to this. No comment from Aaron Fernandez. Uh, but there is open talk about whether if he doesn't resign, whether he might be ousted. I think you have to have something like two-thirds of the members of the State Central Committee, um, but we don't have any to vote uh, for that uh, that uh, resig vote for that expulsion, if you will, firing him. Apparently, there's a couple of other people that might be interested in the interim position should Jung step down. Yeah, I'm just trying to recall when the last time was that I saw him, and I think it was at a Red Hill open house. Uh, was surprised mm. to see him there, and he was, you know, uh, trying to get representation uh, on the on the uh, uh, civilian. Uh, committees that the military was setting up so that was my last uh you know contact with him so it's curious that now you have all these financial problems that the party's dealing with and to that regard uh, kevin dayton did talk to the treasurer of the party larry meacham he says that the party has really struggled to raise money since jung came in that was may 2022 i believe when he assumed the chairship and Meacham is saying that their their money their reserves have dwindled from something like two hundred thousand dollars to barely $61,000. They have started to recoup some of those uh, revenue losses. But here's the thing, if they're going to hold that 
uh, presidential preference poll uh, next spring to coincide with the primaries and the caucuses, the national election for president, they're going to need at least $250,000. So there's an open question as to whether, I mean, that's Hawaii, Democrats participating in who's going to be the nominee. Uh, we are expecting perhaps the Democratic National Committee to meet on Thursday mm. uh, to bring up this issue of, I call it the PPP, but everybody thinks that stands for something else. But basically, it's, it's the Democratic Party, those who are qualified, who use mail-in ballots uh, to pick their preference for who should be the nominee. Obviously, Joe Biden is running for re-election. There's a few others uh, running as well for the Democratic ticket. Yeah, but a real head-scratcher because I can't recall the time when the Democratic Party has been in turmoil like this. I don't know. Can you? No, I, I can't. It's usually a pretty tight ship. I mean, every every organization has its challenges, but, you know, it could impact uh, Hawaii's role in the national convention, which we sometimes, I don't remember uh, whether it, or it's been said exactly, but it's usually in the summer. Republicans meet as well, but um, they, they send delegates, right? They Based on this preference poll, they'll send people to vote it's usually a formality but right now apparently it's only the super delegates who qualify so that kind of if you will i don't want to use the word disenfranchises but really limits the influence of hawaii and the democratic party's um, national convention to elect a new president uh, in 2024 okay well interesting drama unfolding here locally but uh we'll have to stay tuned but thanks so much chad Anytime. Thanks, Catherine. And that was Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from TS Restaurants and its Legacy of Aloha Foundation, supporting the Maui community and assisting those affected by the wildfires. More about how to help by searching tsrestaurants.com Legacy of Aloha. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mark Nepo, author of Falling Down and Getting Up, and next time on New Dimensions, I'll be exploring the dance and rhythm of transformation as it moves through our lives. Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, specializing in residential and commercial building projects. Learn more about services at greenbuildinghawaii.com. Navigating the post-pandemic economy while dealing with the devastation caused by the recent Maui wildfires has created many unforeseen challenges for Hawaii small businesses. In an effort to give our local small business owners extra support during these times, the Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism is holding a free small business fair this coming Saturday, September 16th. It offers classes held uh, led by uh, professional experts and addresses a wide range of topics, including finding access to working capital, e-commerce, 
and social media marketing. The Conversations of Russell Subiono talked to the department's John Green and Mark Ritchie about how the fair helps Hawaii small businesses face these new challenges. What are some of the challenges that your department has seen thus far or anticipates small businesses will encounter on Maui? I think the complete decline in, in tourism has affected a number of companies outside of the actual disaster area, you know, the rest of the island. And I think it's just a lack of tourists coming, you know, renting cars, staying in hotel rooms and, you know, taking advantage of all these other services, restaurants and things, you know, parts, own parts of the island that were not directly impacted by the Lahaina fire. So I think that is something DBED is looking at. How do we help those companies more in the kind of medium to long-term kind of recovery part of that. There's still a lot of actual disaster recovery going on right now. Um, and FEMA and the federal government's, you know, very involved with that. And also the SBA, which we try to work very closely with the SBA and support a lot of the programs and things that they're doing. Navigating the post-pandemic economy also presents some unique challenges. Can you talk about the biggest post-pandemic challenges for small businesses? I think part of the challenges facing small businesses is just to have the fortitude to to go for it. And part of what the small business fair does is it provides that opportunity for the presenting of a wealth of information to small businesses who are just looking to get started. So we have you know 32 exhibitors who are all resource partners for small businesses, whether they're in business currently and wanting to grow post-pandemic and looking for better opportunities to do that, whether it comes to marketing or brand management, access to capital. So this small business fair is what we like to look at as a very efficient use of a either existing small business's time or someone who's looking to start a business and doesn't know where to go. So all these various resource partners are going to be present and all the classes that are being offered will help these small businesses, you know, hopefully be successful in their, in their endeavors. Yeah, the Small Business Fair, we have over 20 classes offered, everything that a business would need from sort of starting up to expanding. We have over 32 exhibitors that are all the state government agencies that provide business support services, the federal government agencies. Also, SBA will bring in a lot of their bank partners that do loans and a lot of other sort of business services. So it's a really good way to get a lot of information in just a couple of hours by attending. And I know that many times when there are challenges, those challenges bring opportunities. How does the Small Business Fair help small businesses maybe identify opportunities? So one one of the good points that you brought up is that obviously there's challenges, but those challenges do present opportunities. And I think when we speak about the resource partners that are there, say you're you know, a typical small business, don't know how to navigate starting a business, what you want to focus on, what, what industries you want to focus on. So some of the resource partners, specifically, if you're a veteran-owned business, a woman-owned small business, you want to do work with the federal government, you want to get certified as a type of business, because those type of certifications leads to greater opportunities you know, specifically for the federal government and hopefully in the future for the state government. And then it's it's also that opportunities to network, right? So you're, you're there networking with other small businesses or other like-minded individuals who are looking to start a business. 
And so it provides that you know, avenue of communication that you can establish, whether it's with other small businesses or with you know, these resource partners that are going to be there, whether it's from the state or the community or these lending institutions that Mark mentioned, that will serve as nothing but a benefit for small businesses going forward. And as we look closer or learn more about the Small Business Fair, I know the fair will offer more than 20 classes led by professional experts that address a wide range of topics, things like working capital, e-commerce, social media marketing, staff management strategies. Can you talk a little bit about how some of the classes that are being offered, how they help businesses? What are some of the biggest needs of small businesses and what are some of the classes that may meet those needs? The classes offer a variety of topics. We we cover a variety of topics and it's really designed for people just starting companies, but also for people that already have companies and are expanding or looking at next steps. So for instance, we have classes on QuickBooks so that Companies can get their accounts right. And I think when you start a company, sometimes people don't pay attention to their books as closely as they should. And then they kind of get off on the wrong foot. And then you want to go for an SBA loan. And then, you know, you have to then clean everything up. So you start from the beginning, get everything set up in QuickBooks. We have access to capital. We have some of the banks, but we also have sort of non-traditional lenders, such as CDFIs that can help companies that can't meet the underwriting requirements of a bank. So we try to help with that and bring in people they can talk to and get information on that. We have a lot of the startup things, like everything just from business registration to protecting your intellectual property or your trademarks. We have a lot of marketing classes on social media and how to market your product and get it out there. And and then DBED, And a lot of other organizations will have exhibitor tables where we can talk about these topics in more details and our programs specifically designed to sort of help companies start and grow. I think it's important for our listeners to know that there is a deadline to register for classes. That deadline is September 12th. So after September 12th, it is on an availability basis. So if there's no space in the classroom, unfortunately, they won't be able to attend but they can check at the registration desk when they walk in to to see about availability if they haven't registered by September 12th. Are there also opportunities for local businesses? Are there also opportunities for them to learn how to get into the running for defense jobs? Yes. So specifically, we do have resource partners who are actually going to be present at the Small Business Fair who help small businesses if they want to focus on either defense contracting or federal contracting on a larger scale. So again, whether you're a veteran who's looking to in business or who's looking to start a business, a woman-owned business, minority, whether it's Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, looking to get in there, there are special set-asides in federal contracting to take advantage of. But you do have to certify your business and go through a process to do that. When we think about the business scene here in Hawaii, you know, it's very easy for us to think about the large corporations or the military or a lot of the large businesses that help keep our economy afloat on a large scale. But I think it's also well known that small businesses are the backbone of any economy and and are very important to every economy out there. Why is it important for Hawaii to have a thriving small business sector? Statistically, Hawaii 
it's even more important, small businesses are even more important here than most other states. I mean, it, what you just said was completely true. It really is the backbone. I don't have all the statistics right at my hand, but the vast majority of our companies are small companies and DBED and a lot of other organizations here at, at the business fair, we're all there to try to support small businesses and help small businesses grow and be successful. Um, just because they're so important to our economy. And, you know, out of those, maybe some of them will grow and become larger companies, but there's nothing wrong with just having a very robust small business sector. And if I was to add to that, I think, as you mentioned, when we think of business in the state, we typically think of the large businesses, but those large businesses wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the support of small businesses. So you can't think of them as a, you know, they're on their own little bubble. You know, so these small businesses support those large businesses. And, you know, I'm speaking from the, the federal perspective. I mean, you can't have large federal contracts without small business support. For any business who's, who's thinking about, or anybody who's thinking of starting a business, know that there are, you know, opportunities. It does take hard work. The Small Business Fair, which I say is free, by the way, is an important event that they should consider attending if they want to learn more about what it means to be a successful small business. Mark Ritchie, John Green, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Mark Ritchie and John Green from the Department of Business and Economic Development and Tourism talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. The free Hawaii Small Business Fair takes place uh, this Saturday, September 16th at Leeward Community College, but the deadline to register is tomorrow, September 12th. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, host of The Body Show. Each week we do our best to provide you with up-to-date medical information from our local experts that might help you or someone you love know more about the world of medicine. Join us today for our latest episode at 6.30 right here on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. Calling all innovators, later this month, the Hawaii Convention Center will play host to a gathering of venture capitalists and startups in aquaculture and agriculture. Thrive Hawaii Agri-Food uh, Summit is being scheduled or is, is, is going to be held on September 26th and 27th. 
Jason Oweki is with High Plan. His ties to aquaculture began with his family's business with brood shrimp farming and a North Shore fish pond. His stepdad, James Wyman, was principal in- investigator on a shrimp project with the Hawaii Pacific University's Oceanic Institute. He co-authored a manual over 30 years ago on intensive shrimp production that is widely used today. Here's Oweki talking about aquaculture, aquaponics, and the innovators and venture capitalists who will attend. Actually, my family's history goes back decades in aquaculture. Before the shrimp rootstock company, my stepfather, Jim Wyman, and my mother, Carol, they decided to take on making lokoe a fish pond on the north shore of Oahu in Haleiwa, uh, a viable fish farm. So I spent my middle school years living at Lokoea Fish Pond, and my parents turned that from an idle pond into a viable fish farm using modern and some traditional techniques for uh, production and harvesting. And I'm going to say viable, I'm going to say that loosely because it was a lot of hard work. They, looked, they worked really, really hard, learned a lot of stuff, but it barely paid the bills, but it did pay the bills. So through that experience, though, he got connection to the Oceanic Institute. And when this USDA uh, opportunity came to help the shrimp industry, they hired him on as the principal investigator for the U.S. Marine Shrimp Farming Program, where they developed the SBF shrimp technology that um, literally uh, transformed the shrimp industry and made shrimp the number one white leg shrimp, which was the type of shrimp the SPF rootstock was, it made it today the number one global product in aquaculture. And I'm told that uh, countries around the globe look to Hawaii for that research to, uh, you know, then take it commercially. Absolutely. So it's not just the rootstock, but it's technique. So uh, at the time when my stepfather was at the Oceanic Institute, they developed the Oceanic Institute Shrimp Manual, which is probably translated into 50 languages, languages, if not more. And it's like the Bible of shrimp production, and that's still being used today. And so it's not just the variety of shrimp, but it's everything from uh, reproduction to the nursery to stocking, and, and it's full of information, and people do still come to Hawaii looking for this expertise. And the industry exports somewhere about $30 million worth of shrimp rootstock per year. And so talk about what you hope to do with this summit. Sure. So what we see is that Hawaii can be a global leader in producing more of these types of technologies that help food production around the world and hopefully can increase our own food security here. So I just don't want to take a step back. And from a global perspective, some of the challenges we face are the, the global population is expected to increase by about 2 billion people in the next 20 to 30 years, which means we're going to have to produce 50 to 70 percent more food just to keep up with the global population growth. At the same time, we have climate change already disrupting production around the world. And we even see that here in Hawaii with the disruption in uh, weather patterns and droughts and floods. And uh, there's Seasonalities are changing two months one way or the other. And the increase in the temperatures is actually going to increase the amount of tests that affect our crops. And 
globally, this is not just the Hawaii problem, the average age of our agricultural workers is 55, when the global age of people around the world is 30. And so what that means is the young, younger generation is not going into agriculture. So we have to find ways to solve these three things, and we think technology is the way. So we think Hawaii, if we put the right investments into it, we have the, the natural resources. We have on the Big Island in particular, we have eight of the world's 11 climates, including the depths of the ocean right offshore. Uh, we have institutional capacity like uh, the University of Hawaii system. We have USDA PBARC here in Hilo. We have NELHA in Kona. You, men- you mentioned earlier Oceanic Institute at Makapu. And we have Coconut Island, the marine biology institute there. We have a lot of institutional support. And what we're trying to do at the conference is we're trying to motivate our local innovators to take a look at our problems because if they can solve them, it's not just here. There's over 500 million small farms in the world that could use these same solutions. So tell us what the aim of this conference is. You know, how is it structured? The two overall reaching goals is we want to introduce Hawaii to what's going on, the innovations going on currently around the world in agriculture and uh, and aquaculture and food technology. And at the same time, we want the world to, to come and take a look at what we have here because we think it's pretty special. Like when you when you mix what I said, the institutional, the natural resources, and then we have a passion for agriculture here. And we have a, a multicultural population and a Native Hawaiian tradition of sustainable practices. We think that's a combination like nowhere else in the world. And so we're hoping that if we can engage with the world, we'll have more attention put here to have these the research done and then translate that into startups to be able to take those research benefits and have them actually come to life in in our communities. We want our local innovators to come and take a look at agriculture, aquaculture, and food as a potential to use their problem-solving skills and innovative skills and, and help us. We also need to have our research community take a look and so that they can help our entrepreneurs. And we also need our business leaders and our policymakers to come. So it's a, really a big tent that we're looking at attracting to this event. Because these are these are big problems. The solutions aren't going to just be single solutions. They're very complex, and there's probably multiple points of resolutions that's needed within the agri-food system. And so we need people throughout the entire value chain and supply chain to come together and look at this problem if we're going to solve them. So uh, of interest, some of the people that are from out of country would be Lissy Smith, who is the CEO of Aquaspark. She's based in the Netherlands, and they are global aquaculture, the most active global aquaculture venture capital fund, and they invest in some companies in Hawaii, and they invest in sustainable aquaculture. So having them, having the CEO come here is, is a very, very big deal for Hawaii to have them come. We also have companies from, our startup pictures are coming from Hawaii, California, Philadelphia, Japan, Singapore, and Vietnam. So some of the startup pitches are, it's going to be global. Uh, we have other investors from uh, Woven by Toyota, George Kellerman, who actually went to the University of Hawaii as an undergrad, is coming. Uh, we have NECX 
from Japan and Nisui from Japan. And uh, and then we have a host of local companies, including uh, Herb Lee, who's going to be presenting on their work at Local IA, doing the indigenous technologies in fish pond production. So it's quite a, quite a lineup we have. So is there anything else that makes this particular summit different than what you've done in the past? Last year we did this in Hawaii, in uh, Hilo, actually. Uh, we had we were branded last year as the Tropical Ag Tech Conference. This year we've mm-hmm. rebranded to the Thrive Boy Agri-Food Summit because we partnered with SDG Ventures Thrive, which is a, a global platform for agri-food tech investment and an accelerator program that works with over 9,000 companies in over 100 countries. And so basically with their help, we have more global uh, presence. It's, it's a great partnership. That was Jason Oeki talking about the upcoming Thrive Hawaii Agri-Food Summit that will take place on September 26th and 27th at the Hawaii Convention Center. Uh, it's a, all part of an effort to become more food secure. Look for a link uh, to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Explosions in space. A massive blast of cosmic energy has been detected by a network of telescopes in Hawaii, Chile, and South Africa. Here's the explanation in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time. Our weekly look into the uh, fascinating and massive universe surrounding our planet and also things we might be able to spot ourselves in the sky. Thankfully, turning to the talents of astronomer Christopher Phillips, we've got him on the line right now. Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week's stargazers look out for Jupiter, rising in the east at around 9 p.m. Saturn will already be visible after sunset, and it can be seen in the southern portion of the sky. The moon this week will be passing through its new moon phase, and so sky brightness will be excellent for spotting those faint objects in the heavens. I understand you've got some information on a sort of remarkable explosion in space, we might say. Yes, a gargantuan cosmic explosion has been detected by a robotic network of telescopes known as ATLAS, which is located in Hawaii, Chile, and South Africa. This blast of cosmic energy came from a dying star in a galaxy located around 2 billion light years from planet Earth. So, you know, just down the street in cosmic terms. What set this explosive event apart from others that we see in the night sky is that it was fantastically powerful, emitting over 100 times the energy of a typical super. Wow, sounds pretty interesting and probably some more unusual facets, I'm I'm guessing. Indeed there is. Typically, supernovae fade over a period of months after the initial explosion, but this new object faded to around 1% of its original brightness in just 14 days, which is staggering. Huh, I guess they have to come up with some sort of uh, new designation, if you will, for this kind of big bang. Yep, you guess right. This type of explosion is completely new to us, and so astronomers had to come up with a name. They call it an LFC, or Luminous Fast Cooler. It's a catchy name, and, uh, and in your uh, research into this, Chris, what do you think caused it to happen? Well, the current theory is that the star that exploded had a rather unfortunate encounter with a black hole, which got a little bit too close for comfort. Stars that go out with a bang, supernovae, 
never go so quickly and so powerfully. So something must have happened to kick this explosion into high gear, the prime suspect being a black hole. And reconfirming this is the first of its kind that's been documented. It is, yeah, the first one ever confirmed. There may be others lurking in detection data in some dusty old archive in the cloud, so I imagine astronomers and grad students all over the world are trying to dust off their virtual books and see if they can find any we may have missed. So, good luck to them. Yep, that's what Chris has told us before. Lots of stuff is out there. Lots of data to be poured through for uh, a long time to come. It is Christopher Phillips and another fascinating report. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Kaka'ako Innovation Block, housing the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation's Entrepreneur Sandbox. FerraroChoi.com. And now it's time for the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier, we asked you for the name of the 128-year-old church erected in Kula, Maui. It was designed and built by Portuguese parishioners who came to work on the local sugar cane uh, plantations. The church held its first mass in 1895, and what makes this historic structure unique is its, its octagonal shape, the only eight-sided building in Hawaii from the 19th century. The church is also significant for keeping its close association with the Portuguese community on Maui over the decades. In April of 1983, it was placed on the Hawaii Register of Historic Places, and in August of the same year, it was placed on the National Registry. The building has undergone uh, one major restoration in 1991 and is still home to an active Roman Catholic congregation. Every year at Pentecost, the church highlights its European roots with the beloved Portuguese Holy Ghost Festival. And we are, of course, talking about the Holy Ghost Catholic Church. And congrats to our winner, Sandra from Kula, knew the answer. But that's, that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. That's it for us today. Tomorrow we hear why scientists are keeping an eye on a type of red seaweed new to science that has been found in Papahanao, Makuakea, and maybe spreading. Should we be worried? Do you have ideas about building back better in Maui? Share it with us. Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in to podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation.